you have to appreciate those small moments. You know, when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to look back and be like, oh man, wasn't it great that time I met so-and-so at an award ceremony? No, you're going to reflect on these things that you probably took for granted right up until the moment that you were leaving. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. In this bonus mini episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Kemp Powers, co-writer and co-director of the latest Pixar masterclass in joyous, heartfelt storytelling. Soul, released yesterday on Disney+, Plus, is a movie that feels made for these times. Co-written by Mike Jones and revered Pixar veteran Pete Docter, this eye-popping existentialist comedy packs a tender, timely punch that plenty of people will be able to relate to after a year of lockdown and uncertainty. Jamie Foxx stars as Joe, a music teacher who aspires to be a New York jazz piano great. On the day of his big break, Joe suffers a fatal accident. What follows is an emotional cosmic trip that invites you to think about mortality, our purpose in life, and the characteristics that define us. We grabbed half an hour with Kemp to talk about the development and creation of Soul, discussing the wildly different versions of the movie that almost were. In some, Joe was an animator instead of a jazz pianist. In other versions of the script, there was no Joe at all. We also get into the genesis of the film's crazy second act twist, and the darker fate for Joe that Pete, Mike and Kemp almost opted for. This is, of course, a spoiler-filled discussion, so if you haven't seen this wonderful adventure already, I highly recommend that you do so before listening. And as this is the last script apart of 2020, I just wanted to take a quick second before we jump in with Kemp to say thank you to everyone who's listened and supported this year. It's been a blast. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Kemp, how's it going? Good, how are you, man? All good, all good. Feeling pretty festive. Thanks so much for joining us on Script Apart. Um, we love Soul. Uh, Soul is so much fun and such a beautiful meditation on life and death and what it is that makes each of us who we are. Not every movie or animated movie certainly deals with the giant existential questions that this film grapples with. Um, was there a sense among you guys as you worked on the, on the film that you were doing something really bold, even by Pixar standards? I was the new person. So for me, yes, because, you know, I can't count how many times I asked, like, are we really going to be able to do this? Like, do we like, and, and part of it was, I think my expectations coming in were so different. You know, I've always been a tremendous fan of Pixar films. I've always, I view myself as a storyteller and I've always seen Pixar as like the house of master storytelling. Still, you know, the, the success, their success with making family entertainment, I was just, Assuming that when I went in there, a lot of the discussion during the process of writing it and making it would revolve around children. And that's actually not the case. You're just, you're just cracking this from a straight story perspective. And kids don't really come into the discussion <laughs> at all. It's just like, and, and, and that's the norm. That's not just soul. That's, that's everything. Like the way they tell stories is it's always coming from this very, very personal place of the, of the director, whoever pitches the original idea. Um, and from that personal place, it kind of gets developed, gets developed and then being run through the brain trust process. I don't know. It just, 
it just becomes, I guess, more kid friendly, almost organically. <laughs> yeah. But some of these these ideas start from some very, very heady places. And and that's the wonderful thing about the process. It's an iterative process where we get to make we made so many really, really bad versions of soul um, versions that were too adult versions that were too childlike. We like we made we, we actually made all those versions of the film, too, before we made the version that we actually finally made and ended up animating. So, um, but there were definitely things specific to this that felt different, even within the Pixar canon, um, related to, you know, the, the themes of the film, some of the stuff we decided to do, some of the racial components of the film. It just, and, and it, and it came, but, but it was always, that was what was kind of exciting because I wanted to come on, if I was going to come on board in Pixar, I was excited to do an original film because I've known how impactful some of Pixar's originals have managed to be over the years. Um, I guess I was just a little bit surprised by just how much we were able to paint outside the lines with this one. I mean, there's not even a title card in the beginning of the film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like think about that. There's never been a like little things like that where it's like, do we need to have a title card in the beginning of the film? I guess not. And we just didn't do it. <laughs> little things like that. Big things like having a George Orwell quote or two. Yes, exactly. I remember I remember the day we tried to quote and we were laughing and it's like, is anyone else going to get this? Ah, who cares? So as a big Pixar fan going into this camp, I mean, I'd be interested in your take. It's interesting how this film intersects thematically with other Pixar movies. The interiority of the story has shades of inside out, while the idea of music as expression and a form of purpose, that's something we've seen explored a little bit in Coco. In both cases, though, Soul finds ways to stand on its own and do its own thing. How would you describe the way this movie both overlaps with other Pixar movies and breaks new ground? Well, overlaps is a tough word to use because, you know, every film is like Pixar has six, seven films being made at simultaneously and the filmmakers are operating completely independently. So I think that overlap is more a projection because, I mean, with Pete, there's going to be a certain internal quality to all of his films because that's just who Pete is. You know, Pete kind of dwells a lot in this internal place and asks these questions. And these are questions he's, you know, that are just rolling around in his head all the time. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm surprised there haven't been more films other than Soul and Coco that have used music as a motif, just because music is it's something that's just like easily gettable um, and, and understandable. Because initially, Joe wasn't supposed to be a jazz musician. Um, so this came from just like practicality. You know, I think initially Pete discussed maybe he should be an animator, but then it's like, well, you see someone animating and that's like the most boring thing to watch in the world. So you can't make that exciting. Um, for a while, Joe was an actor, um, uh, who basically got a role in, um, death of a salesman. We'll talk about dark. Um, and so, and I think that with jazz, it was the perfect thing. Cause it was like, it was a rootable goal because most people don't want to become jazz musicians to become rich and famous. And that's, mm. that was it. With the actor, it was really hard to kind of thread the whole idea of like, what are you pursuing? Are you pursuing fame, wealth, you know, these more ego driven things, but with a jazz musician, I think jazz kind of like classical is seen as one of the more pure forms where it's like, it, it speaks to your connection on an almost visceral level to, to the music. But um, yeah, for the overlap, I mean, it's funny because the same teams make all these films. 
So of course there's lots of room for the artists and the designers to put their little Easter eggs and stuff in the film. I mean, of course we do little Easter eggs ourselves, but you have to understand when the film is done and right before it's all mixed, we all got a document that showed us all the Easter eggs and most of the Easter eggs in the film, we didn't know about, you know, it's like, Oh wow. Someone put the, the, the space invaders alien in the camouflage on the buskers jacket. Like people, the artists go wild sticking references to their previous work, which would be previous Pixar films into every movie. Mm. So I think that's why there's so much of a, belief of an overlap but the way they're made is kind of the opposite like we other than when you're in another artist's brain trust you're really operating in a pod doing your own thing and you mentioned there how there was once an animated version of joe and there was an actor version of joe but of course for a while there was no joe and as i understand it 22 was the lead character for a while in in the development process and the entire story was told from their perspective can you right. talk about what wasn't working about that and why it made sense to introduce Joe, this character whose own struggles would, uh, yeah, enlighten 22 and vice versa? Well, when I came on, um, Joe was there and it was, I think the decision was made shortly after I, that was the decision that had to be made was whose film it was. When I came on board, it was very much more of an even buddy comedy where Joe and 22 had pretty much equal screen time. So I think they had kind of tried both and they weren't sure which direction to go down. I mean, 22 is such so great for comic value that I think there was a lot of belief that like, you know, okay, maybe this should be 22's film. Um, and, And I think part of the reason why the decision was made to make it distinctly Joe's film came from the fact that Joe wasn't painted with a, you know, a multicolored brush yet. When I came on board, Joe was actually, I said in the first meeting with Pete, I was like, he's kind of the least interesting character in the reels. This is the early reels Mm. where, you know, he was kind of along for the ride with 22 and over the course of fleshing out Joe in the first couple of reels, he became the, everyone's focus of attention. And his journey became the primary journey that we, we came about, we, we, we start to care about. But that was something that was just proven out in writing Joe as more of a three-dimensional character. I can't speak to why, you know, he, he, he wasn't that well-developed. I think people had set up their own caution cones because of, perhaps because of the race thing. You know what I mean? And didn't, because you don't want to offend anyone, you end up not doing anything with certain characters. Whereas 22 is just like, bam, more jokes, more jokes. She can change shape. You know, she does. It's just comedy gold. But, um, you, you know, it was to me, it was reading like the equivalent of you wouldn't go back and make up with Doug the dog, the main character. As much as Doug is hilarious yeah. and funny, that's what it felt like. I mean, you know, it's, it's not the job of the main character to just keep people laughing all the time. Um, and, and it's just like having Joe's journey be an emotional journey and a journey we can understand was, I think, the, the key to Joe earning the lead in the film, which was really, really important to me. And adding Joe and adding that jazz background gives you this, as you say, this jazz motif that can run through the film. And it's funny, uh, you, Pete and Mike seem to bring a certain jazziness and musicality to the script. 
So this is a movie where scenes can go from loud to quiet, fast to slow. There's tempo changes, dynamic changes, especially with all those like really fun, abrupt cuts to jokes that you've got spliced all the way through the film. It feels like you guys were kind of leaning into the jazziness of it, of it all. Was, was that something you sat down and decided to inject into the script? It's just what happened um, very, very naturally, to be honest, um, because we all got along so well and really enjoyed bouncing ideas off of one another. Um, understand, like making this film, we had three movies worth of ideas. So it was like really paring back some of these ideas. Look, there, there were things I still missed that I wish we could have figured out a way to get into the film. You know what I mean? Like when they're, they, they, they had spent a lot more time out on, on, on the zone with Moonwind and his crew. And there were so many other ideas. Like we used to have dream bubbles where the hills were literally people's dreams. And you could go into one of those bubbles and you find yourself inside of a person's like really freaky dream. And I like, <laughs> I love that. I, there were so many different things. The world, like every, every stage of this film was almost like a movie's worth of ideas. So we had to really pair stuff back. Um, and again, pair stuff back with the central goal of telling Joe's story, going on Joe's journey. Everything had to be in service to Joe. And, and his goals and, and his dreams and, and what we were trying to accomplish for, for him. But, but there were just lots of great ideas and lots of fun ideas. And we were having a blast. <laughs> and again, we tried a lot of these things. And some of them worked from a comedy standpoint. You know, some of them were easily gettable. Some of them were entertaining. But ultimately, we had to kind of steer ourselves back into the lane of the story that we wanted to tell. Mm. And just like jazz has the freedom to jump between different musical ideas and improvise, you guys in Seoul jump from profound existential drama to body swap with a cat comedy, which is such, it was such a surprise to me watching the film, having no idea that was coming. Um, first of all, I'm glad that the, the whole, st that whole strand of the movie was held back from marketing because yeah, as I said, it was such a surprise watching it for the first time. How early in the creative process did that idea, the idea of this body swap come about and, and what did you find so fun about it? The body swap was Mike Jones idea. Yeah. So that was definitely, and as they, it was actually already there when I came on. In fact, when I came on, I think the body swap was more of the film to the point where, you know, the, my, my question for it was like, okay, you know, it, it can be one of the several obstacles that Joe encounters on trying to get back. But I think it's a fun, it's a fun obstacle for a smaller section of the movie. You know what I mean? Because initially in an earlier version of the film, Joe never went back down to earth. Him and 22 were in the great beyond the entire film. And if Joe is supposed to make these discoveries and learn about his life, it was really important for him to go back down to earth, you know, and see his life from that different perspective. So that's my understanding of where, what sparked, you know, this is before I came on board, Pete, that was the, that was the challenge that Pete and Mike had um, before I became writer. And it resulted in Mike coming up with the, the body swap. Um, and uh, again, it was just like, okay, the, the body swap is there, but, um, but also it's like, we didn't want to make a body swap film, you know, like that's a, that's a, you know, it's, it would have been, it would have been a lot easier to make a body swap <laughs> film. But what we were trying to do was very different. It was very much like, okay, this guy feels cheated by the universe. Um, here are here are going to be the three stumbling blocks to him getting back to his body, and that was going to be one of them. And of course, it doesn't hurt that that's the one that we feel kind of 
you know, the younger members of the audience, you know, in particular would, would probably, you know, enjoy it. It gives us an opportunity for a lot of physical comedy um, yeah. that, that we don't have a lot of chances to do in this very, very existential film of ours. Hey everyone, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you that support for Script Apart this week comes from Cave Day. Revising scripts requires supreme focus. The best writers know they need to harness everything they've got to overcome internal and external obstacles. Cave Day lead group focus sessions for a worldwide community every day on Zoom that help you do just that. Think of it like a group fitness class, but for your work. A trained guide leads check-ins, deep work sprints, and energizing breaks. Members report they get two to four times more done with Cave Day's science-backed method. Join the world's most focused community and work alongside Emmy winners and Oscar winners. Gift cards are available and make a great present as we head towards the festive season. And Script Apart listeners can try it out for free. Head to caveday.org and type in the promo code SCRIPTAPART, all uppercase, at checkout. That's caveday.org. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. But the film does take place in these two very different spaces with two very different but equally awesome scores, I should point out. Um, So I guess first, let's talk about New York. You are a New Yorker and it's clear on the screen and on the page that you felt an obligation, not just to depict a New York that felt authentic, but specifically a New York that felt authentic to this character, the places he'd go, the family and friends that would be around him, the rituals he'd observe, such as it being important to Joe to get a haircut before playing at the Half Note Club. Can you tell me, Kemp, about the, I guess, the specificity that you wanted to make sure went into this movie regarding um, Joe's New York and how how you approach that? Yeah, well, I mean, New York, like London, is uh, they, there are certain cities that everyone feels like they know them, and but then the cities really are different depending on who you speak to. And I think you know, again, Joe and me both being black New Yorkers, I wanted to both have capture this city that everyone recognizes, but also capture the specificity of a New York resident of us from a certain group. Um, and it took a lot of different things. I mean, a lot of it was just in. Once again, fleshing out Joe's character, where Joe goes, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the, I call them authentic black spaces because I say whatever ethnicity you happen to be in a lot of these world cities, you often find yourself going home to, going shopping in, passing through these spaces where there's lots of other people from your ethnic group. Um, and I think that's part of the experience of living in a great city. Um, and another thing was making sure that it looked distinct, like um, New York. In, in animated films and features, they tend to get a lot of the same locations. And I was like, it should be vis- visibly obvious from the visuals when he's in Queens versus when he's in Manhattan. When he's in Manhattan, we should know what part of Manhattan he's in just from the visuals. It's very obvious when you're in the village and it's very obvious when you're in Jackson Heights. In fact, you know, when that's roughly where Joe's character, you know, lives um, in, in terms of, and it's just because I lived in <laughs> I lived in that area. So the seven train was actually my commute to work when I lived (laughs) in Queens. I grew up in Brooklyn, but I moved to Queens as an adult. And so the seven train does this like hard left behind the silver cup studios sign. And I remember many mornings like doing that same ride. And I, I told that to Trevor Jimenez, who was actually our, our, um, one of our story, one of our lead story artists. He's the one who actually boarded a lot of those sequences. So Oh, that's that's the key thing is it's the collaboration. Like when they're like, OK, Joe's experiencing these moments from his life. Um, you know, I'd sit in Trevor's office and he'd be like, so what should these moments be? Trevor's from Toronto. 
So, you know, I've got to explain. I'm like, oh, well, you know, there's something really awesome about the sun rising in the outer boroughs because you can often see the canyons of Manhattan in the distance. It would be really nice to catch that sunrise. And, and you kind of work through it. Um, but also the people. So much of what makes New York distinct is the people. So the background artists, usually with BG characters, you know, there's a limited number of body types and complexions and, and clothing. And with Soul, we were allowed to push way beyond those numbers. So if you really look at the BG characters in Manhattan, not just the volume of the characters, but the body types, the complexions, the clothing styles, the hairstyles go far beyond anything that um, Pixar has ever done before. And that's the thing is that it took like every single department on the film to help bring this version of New York to life. Yeah, yeah. The other space that we see in the movie, of course, is the great before. Now, we've seen afterlifes on screen before. In fact, I was thinking as I rewatched the film last night, what a wonderful companion piece it feels like to the sitcom The Good Place, which uh, uh, these two things have bookended the year for me. Um, but I've heard the- that. I've never seen The Good Place. I have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. They, they lean into each other quite nicely. But um, to the best of my knowledge, a, a before life realm, that's something that I haven't seen explored on screen before. Did you have like reference points? How hard was it getting a good balance for the place? Because presumably for the story to work, you want the place to be nice, but not so nice that the audience would wonder, hey, why, why can't Joe stay here? It seems pretty awesome. That's actually what our head of production said. I mean, Steve Pilcher, who was in charge of the production, that was one of the subtle things about the, the great before when he was designing it visually. He was like, it should be soothing and warming. But when compared to the the real world of New York, the tactile world, you should naturally want to be more in that space (laughs) than in this warm, inviting, fluffy space. Um, And that's why it's not as clearly defined. There are elements, recognizable elements, like sort of the facsimiles of trees and things like that. But in terms of visual reference, I mean, every, the, the artist drew inspiration from, from everything. I mean, you know, obviously the counselors look like, you know, elements of Picasso and, and Calder, um, call Calder's art. But the, the, the great before, we wanted to do something that was visually um, distinct, visually um, unique. Um, and, and we didn't have any real reference points. It started off with kind of like, The buildings were almost like Greek structures, but we threw that out because this idea that it would be looking like ancient Greek didn't feel right if it was Mm. supposed to be the place that the entire world came from. So, you know, once again, it was like an an iterative um, process that took a lot of trial and error before we landed on this place that doesn't seem tied. The key is it couldn't seem tied to any one culture or any one country. So, you know, the rolling fields, the what looks like blades of grass, but they're actually like they contain light, you know, it, it, it you know, softer elements um, that are just a little more vague, a little, a, a lot less clearly defined. Um, and, and again, it was a, it, it's, it's funny because so many people reference the New York city and how detailed it is and how hard it was, must've been to do that. But it was actually way more difficult to bring the great before to life. Like yeah. so difficult that it impacted the how we produce the film because we actually produced the film the new york sequences we produced those first because we were still figuring out elements in production for the great before 
So it took us so much longer to figure out those elements that we couldn't produce the great before sequences until the latter half of our production cycle. And let's talk about the ending. Was there ever a version of this film at any point where you considered not giving Joe another chance on Earth, sending him on to the great beyond? Or was that just too dark for a film that's going to be seen around the kids, uh, seen by kids around the world on Christmas Day? We screened versions for audiences where Joe stayed dead at the end. Wow. So we, we, that was a, that was the, that was a decision that was made very like we, we just kept going back and forth about whether Joe should um, go back and have another chance or whether he should stay in the great beyond. And we were, to be honest, even among our, our core team, we were kind of split on that idea. Um, And I think that, yeah, I think it was right before our audience preview that we finally came back on the idea of Joe going back. But we have a lot of versions where Joe does not come back. Um, some of them were pretty dark. Some of them were, I think, very uplifting, but they still left people in a dark place. <laughs> um, and that's just it. Is that like as noble an action as that was, it still made people come out feeling very upset in the wrong way. Um, let's, let's put it that way. And, and, um, look, look, I, I refer uh, a movie that a lot of us love a lot is, um, it's a wonderful life. Yeah. And what it felt like when we had Joe die is akin to like, imagine if at the end of it's a wonderful life, George Bailey stayed dead. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, that doesn't feel good. Does it like it just, uh, you, you can make it, you can have it make sense from a logical standpoint. But from an emotional standpoint, it just leaves you with a very bad taste in your mouth. Mm-hmm. So um, and, and the question we asked ourselves is, what's the point of him getting to reassess his life if he's then not going to get a chance to do anything about it? But it, it took us a while to get to that. And we yeah, we did have we had versions where Joe was in the youth seminar and became like the world's best mentor and stayed there. But even in that version, people just were like, Man, they were they were in such a bad place when the lights went up. It just did not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But the way it does end has this great message that I hadn't really seen on screen before, but is really relatable. So Joe is scared that unless you achieve this thing that you've decided is your purpose, your life will have amounted to nothing. But the journey he goes on throughout the film teaches him that that's not what makes us who we are. And I'm wondering, Kemp, you were a journalist for 17 years doing creative writing in your spare time before all these recent hugely successful projects as a playwright and a screenwriter. Uh, Did you wrestle with that same fear in those years at all, dreaming of another type of storytelling that you wanted to break into, being scared of what it would mean if you didn't succeed in that in that dream? Of course, because, you know, I have kids of my own. So, you know, it's, it's that much harder and more frightening when you're not just responsible for yourself, but you're responsible for, for others and the, the, the potential negative impact of, of your decisions on, on your own children. Um, especially when, you know, the, it's so funny that these types of goals and dreams are so rootable in our entertainment, but they're not very rootable in real life. In real life, you know, we're much more practical. Um, because you know, you're so, so when you tell people a lot of these things that you're trying to do, you're from, they come, people come from a very well-meaning place because they don't want to see you suffer and struggle, but you don't actually get a lot of encouragement. At least I didn't get a lot of encouragement. 
um, because it, it, I guess it, it must have seemed kind of crazy. Uh, you, you know, the the um, the idea that I'm going to quit my career that that's done well for me, even though the career was contracting um, to to write plays, um, which everyone knows there's like no money in playwriting. Um, it just, <laughs> just does, it, it must seem just borderline, um, insane, but, but that's the thing. That's what it, that's what it's like to have a drive to do a thing that no one else can understand it. And, and you have to be like that almost delusional about it to even have an opportunity to have a chance to, to, to succeed. Like talent is such a small, that's what I loved about working with John Batiste. Like in earlier iterations of Joe, the character, a lot of questions will come about, about if Joe is so talented, how come he hasn't succeeded yet? And people didn't understand that. And it was when John Batiste came on board where he was like, oh, that he's like, I know people super talented, as talented (laughs) as me. And they never made it and they're never going to because it's so many other factors. There's a certain amount of luck. There's perseverance. There's, um, there's factors outside of your innate talent that lead to your success. You know, he, and he said, John Batiste was one. Sometimes it's as simple as they're not wearing the right threads. So, you know, the whole thing of the gig suit, when John Batiste said that we were like, Oh man, we think we're on the right course because even he said, sometimes it's just, they don't produce, they don't present well. Um, and it's all these factors that go into being a quote unquote successful um, musician. <laughs> it's not just the music. And just finally, Kemp, it's really interesting how this film coincides with the time that we're living in. So 2020 has obviously been so tough for so many, but one thing that struck me about this film in its message is the, the, it, the richness of being able to stop and take notice of the smallest details is something that sort of, yeah, just sits in this film. And moments like 22 gazing into the sky, watching leaves fall and taking such joy and awe from that really overlapped with that strange thing. I think a lot of people experienced in that moment of stillness as we went into lockdown. Um, how do you think this film kind of, uh, yeah, sort of hits differently because of the time that it's entering the world in? It's kind of surreal, isn't it? Because when we were making the film a couple of years ago, I remember us having conversations where I, w- I was the one who would say, are we being, is this film too earnest? Like, are we making like such a film, like a film that's so earnest that is borderline corny, you know? And, and, and again, we couldn't have predicted 2020, but this idea that like, you have to appreciate those small moments, you know, that when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to look back and be like, oh man, wasn't it great that time I met so-and-so at an award ceremony? No, you're going to reflect on um, these things that you took, probably took for granted right up until the moment that you were leaving like that. That was the beautiful thing that inspired us that we also worried people didn't want to hear a story like that because, you know, we live in these incredibly cynical, sarcastic times. Um, and, and it, and, and it's not, soul is not an edgy film. It's, 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 um, you know, it's an earnest film and earnest. And now, and we're just at a time when being earnest feels almost edgy because no one's earnest anymore. And it just coincidence. Is it coincidence? Is it fate that we would find ourselves at the tail end of a year? I mean, I always thought that the story we were trying to tell felt like a bit more of a holiday film. So, you know, when we got pushed while we were disappointed to see our release dates getting pushed, 
you know, June always struck me as like, really a summer movie? I always felt like we were more meant for the holidays. Um, so then at the end of all this to be coming out on Christmas, I don't know, it just feels like it was meant to be. <laughs> well, it's such a gift. I love this film so much, Kemp. And uh, this has been so much fun. Thanks for coming on Script Apart. Oh, my pleasure. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kemal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>